right now on Matter of Fact. An Arizona family has worked this land for generations. This is our family legacy. This is what we know how to do. Now, a decades-long drought could destroy their way of life. There was just not enough water to push down the canals. The dam got down to zero acre feet. What's the cost to America's farm families when the water runs out? Plus, a Pennsylvania school banned books written by a Nobel Prize winner and a Supreme Court justice. The school board can't just ignore us. So a group of students took to the streets in protest. If you see something wrong, if you see something that you think needs to be addressed, I say, go for it. What we can learn from the teenagers who stood up for the voices that were silenced. But first, what's the state of America's democracy? Many have said that the January 6th insurrection was basically a, a dress rehearsal for a coup. The election sabotage agenda and the agenda to suppress votes is an agenda to shut out the American voters, and that's a form of a coup. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. One week into 2022, and it's clear Americans are overwhelmed by the ongoing pandemic and uncertain about the nation's political future. The USA Today and Suffolk University survey finds more than eight in 10 registered voters worried about the future of American democracy. The midterm elections this fall will be a report card on the handling of the pandemic, the investigation into the January 6th insurrection, and the core values of the nation. Today, we look at the foundation of our electoral system, voting rights, and the aggressive push to restrict voting. Wendy Weiser is a vice president for democracy at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law. Wendy Weiser joins me. Nice to talk to you. Uh, let's begin with your assessment of the state of democracy in America right now. We're really at a perilous moment in our nation's history. We are seeing across the country, laws being put in place that make it harder for Americans to vote in 19 states. We are also seeing attacks on the idea of impartial election administration with a new trend of legislation and other efforts that actually make it easier, enable partisan manipulation of the election administration process and of the counting of the votes. Give us some specific examples. So Georgia is one of those states with this monster new law. It rolls back um, the access to mail voting in a number of ways, shuts down ballot drop boxes. Um, it makes it harder to provide voter assistance, um, infamously criminalizing providing food and water to people who are waiting online to vote. After we all witnessed seven and eight hour long lines in Georgia, people waiting to vote, and they removed the elected secretary of state from running the elections board and put in place a, a, a selected partisan in Texas. Uh, a law will make it much harder to assist people um, with disabilities or with language access needs um, to vote. It actually makes it a criminal offense for election officials to either um, send out an absentee ballot um, application to somebody who didn't specifically request it, but also to truthfully tell people about their right to apply for an absentee ballot in that state. Talk to me a little bit about what 
federally speaking, 2022 could look like? Well, I'm actually quite hopeful. The two pieces of federal legislation, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, would thwart each and every piece of election subversion or vote suppression legislation that we are seeing in the states. They've passed um, the House. They've gotten full support of the Democratic Party um, in both houses of Congress. The Senate is currently debating how they might be able to get it passed without getting a full 60 votes. Some have said, actually many have said, that the January 6th insurrection was basically a, a dress rehearsal for a coup. Do you agree with that framing? The election sabotage agenda and the agenda to suppress votes is an agenda to shut out the American voters and to upend our system of government so that the, the voice of the people is not going to be selecting who it is that is running the country. So we are seeing in many ways a slow moving coup already in place across the country. And Congress can stop it, but we need to pass those bills in order to do that. Wendy Weiser with the Brennan Center at NYU. Thank you, Wendy. Always nice to talk to you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Next on Matter of Fact, farmers cut off from their water sources, facing their worst fears. This drought has just been one that I don't think any of us expected and not sure how to deal with it. What the mega drought means for families whose lives are tied to the land. And later, millions of families struggle to make ends meet. How do I pay, you know, my rent or how do I get by day to day? How a monthly child tax credit changed their lives until it ended. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. There is some good news for those who are suffering through the mega drought in the western U.S. Record-breaking December snowstorms are bringing much-needed relief. But climate scientists warn that full drought recovery is a long way off. Mega droughts last for decades, and California, Nevada, and Arizona are facing severe water shortages. The majority of Arizona farmers depend on the Colorado and Gila rivers to irrigate their crops. But this year, 65% of their water will be cut off. Why? Well, with the Colorado River just 39% capacity, regulators are restricting water rights to conserve what's left. Our correspondent, Dina Demetrius, traveled to Casa Grande, Arizona, to talk with the Kaywood family about the drought that's got their land and their lives in its grip. On my way out here, I passed by the canal and there was no water in it, and I just burst into tears. In the heart of the southwestern desert in Pinal County, Arizona, Nancy Kaywood's farm emerges from the arid terrain like a little piece of Eden. But at ground level, the struggle both the land and her family endure becomes clear. Does this alfalfa look like how you would like it to look? No, we would like it to look a lot thicker. Um, we were into kind of um, a situation where it was not greening up at all. And so do you take it out? Do you take the chance that it's going to rebound? And if it does rebound, is it going to be worth the water? The Kaywoods have been productive cotton and forage crop farmers for a hundred years, four generations farming 247 acres. But before he passed last year, Kaywood's father wondered if it would make it to a fifth. 
he was very concerned about the drought. You know, and he said, I don't know how much longer you guys can hang in. Last April, the San Carlos Irrigation District, which provides water from the Gila River to Kaywood and her neighbors, cut down, then completely cut off irrigation for several months. With no water, the Kaywoods planted no cotton, a primary crop. We have probably 50 to 60 percent of our ground fallow. That's a huge hit to your farm. It's a very large hit and it hurts. You know, financially, it's just, it's breaking us. The years-long drought has ravaged the area. Coolidge Dam and its reservoir, San Carlos Lake, which provides irrigation to hundreds of farms, plummeted to 3% of full capacity. Now this main canal is bone dry. This is the first time that I know of in the history of all of the farms around here that this has been shut down in April. And that is unheard of. That's the time we irrigate. In 2019, Pinal County leaders realized there'd be water cuts, but thought they'd happen gradually over 10 years. Now those cuts have come sooner, nearly a decade earlier than they thought. You're going to see around 60% fallowing this year. Stephen Miller is the chair of the Pinal County Board of Supervisors and sits on the board of the Central Arizona Project, which manages the Colorado River's canals and allocations through three counties. It's going to definitely have an effect on the economics of this, this community. Um, $2.8 billion of generated in the ag community in Pinal County. There's going to be less cotton grown, less hay grown. Uh, there's already herd depletion in the dairy industry. Ag is short for agriculture, and with water cuts hitting that first, not only do farmers lose income, their property taxes also become unbearable. The tax code is set up to keep an ag status on your land, which gives you a reduced rate. I mean, it doubles the taxes from ag status to vacant land. For the Kaywoods, that's a $22,000 tax and water bill. So son Travis Hartman leased land nearby, which he thought had a more reliable source of water, the Colorado River. But that hasn't worked yet because of new unprecedented water cuts. We are talking about if we have to sell to try to find land in a, a more, um, you know, where there's more water available to us. But I think we're still in shock that we said the S word. You know, the sale word is just almost more than any of us could emotionally handle. For now, the Kaywoods are looking to deeper groundwater wells for a reprieve. Just gives us this little tiny, shiny bit of hope is that that could happen. And it's that little bit of hope that allows the Kaywoods to continue staying rooted in Pinal County for now. This is our family legacy. This is what we know how to do. This is what we're about. This is us. In Casa Grande, Arizona, I'm Dina Demetrius for Matter of Fact. Coming up on Matter of Fact, teenagers in Pennsylvania fight back against a book ban at their school. It just takes courage. It takes you being uncomfortable for a little bit, but you can do it. Find out how their battle is inspiring other students across the country. The arguments over what children learn inside classrooms typically center around what adults want. In York County, Pennsylvania, the debate started with a list of books, a list that was designed to be a resource for highlighting BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of Color, and LGBTQ communities. 
but that list became a weapon in the form of book banning. Then a group of York County students decided to fight back as attempts to ban books spread around the country in places like Spotsylvania, Virginia, Austin, Texas, and Sandy, Utah. Students from those communities have started asking the York teens for advice. Our correspondent, Joey Chen, talked to the students who are leading the way. Just north of the historic Mason-Dixon line, a new cultural divide emerged, drawn across this sprawling suburban campus as some surprising titles were targeted. Not quite Snow White, Hidden Figures, and Malala's autobiography. In all, dozens of books were on the list, including ones written by a Nobel Prize winner, a Supreme Court justice, several celebrated children's authors, even a coloring book. Almost all of them written about or by people of color. Venami Casa, a Dr. Seuss book. Pink is for boys. Why do you think these books were picked? I honestly, I cannot tell you why because I don't know their motives behind it. But I do know it's interesting that all these books were about BIPOC members. It was truly a, a, a terrifying moment for a lot of us because we were like, this is our school. This isn't something that we're reading over the news. And so I texted her and I said, we have to do something about this. And she said, I agree. We knew that it wasn't right. So we came together as a group and we started protesting and we asked our friends to come along with us. It's not just our struggle is theirs as well. Others quickly joined in. Social media drew supporters far from central Pennsylvania. And at York Central, out on the sidewalk before the start of class each morning, the protest grew. How did you feel standing out on the street? At first, I'm um, being honest, it was a little scary. I did not know how how other kids would respond to it. I was nervous for some teachers because they had been put in such a horrible situation where they can't feel comfortable saying what they want because of fear of being um, punished. A concern echoed by the author of one book on the list. Milo's Museum tells the story of a girl who takes representation into her own hands. Welcome to my museum, she told them with a proud smile. I'm Milo, your curator and docent. Author Zeta Elliott fears the chilling effect of book bans in schools. I think it makes educators and librarians a lot more self-conscious. I think authors, some people really feel energized by it because it reminds us of the importance of books in the classroom. Which is why the voices of young activists are power in numbers and the more we spread this message, the more the school boards can't just ignore us. We're key to the fight. Your voice has to stand in for the voice that just got silenced. And that's essentially what those young people did. They insisted on being heard. And that, again, follows in the tradition of activism against injustice. After months of discussion and days of demonstrations, the school board backed down. The books were allowed to remain a life lesson for the young changemakers. When we listen to our young people, when we engage them in conversation, when we find out what they need and what they value, that makes our community stronger. It just takes courage. It takes you being uncomfortable for a little bit, but you can do it. If you see something wrong, if you see something that you think needs to be addressed, I say, go for it. It's a lesson learned by the books. For The Listening Tour, I'm Joey Chen in York County, Pennsylvania.
Joey's report is part of our latest matter of fact listening tour, Promises of Change, featuring guests like Boston's mayor, Michelle Wu, author and historian Ibram Kendi, and musician and composer John Legend. You can watch the matter of fact listening tour, Promises of Change, on matteroffact.tv. Ahead on Matter of Fact, the check is not in the mail. The child tax credit ends for millions of families. We need food, we need, you know, clothes, we need our house. A look at the impact on America's children. The check is not in the mail. The monthly child tax credit payments sent to millions of American parents have ended. The child tax credit was previously a lump sum claimed when filing yearly taxes. Starting last July, up to $300 per month per child was sent directly to eligible parents. In June, Matter of Fact visited New Mexico mom Andrea Alvarado and asked her how the extra cash would help her family. Having flexibility with money is helpful to me and my family. In the short term, I get to decide where this money goes. In the long term, this money will help me plan and save. The checks have been helpful to families. A Columbia University study showed those payments kept 3.8 million children out of poverty, a nearly 30% reduction in the child poverty rate. The Build Back Better Act includes a provision to extend the monthly child tax credit. While the House has passed the bill, it's currently stalled in the Senate. Ahead on Matter of Fact. Nearly a year after the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol, it's tempting to conclude that the insurgency failed. It didn't. At least, not yet. A historian weighs in on the state of our democracy. today, I want to introduce you to Joanne B. Freeman. She's a professor of history and American studies at Yale University. Professor Freeman authored an opinion piece about the January 6th insurrection and the importance of acknowledging that a critical line has been crossed. Her op-ed ran in the Washington Post. We've asked her to share part of that essay with us here. Nearly a year after the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol, with the duly elected president in place, it's tempting to conclude that the insurgency failed. It didn't, at least not yet. More than 700 alleged rioters have been arrested and sentences have been short and few. Here's the problem and its foreboding. If a line is crossed and the occasion passes unacknowledged, was there really a line? The nation suffered a deliberate attempt to violently overturn a free and fair election with little pushback an astonishing lapse that invites more of the same. In the past, we've seen the impact of public exposure of a cross line, even when it's slow to come. The 1973 Watergate hearings, broadcast live for two weeks, reached millions of American homes daily. Before the hearings, polling showed that 31% of Americans considered the Watergate break-in a serious matter. After the hearings, 53% shared that view. Now, some members of Congress are leery of an investigation and its implications, but their silence comes at great cost. Although accountability won't single-handedly end our current crisis, its absence virtually guarantees more of the same. 
The House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol will hold public hearings this year. A full report on the events is expected before the November midterm elections. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and we'll see you back here next week for Matter of Fact. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.